You know, one thing I'm always struck by as a preacher is the, the wide variety of topics we cover simply by working our way sequentially through books of the Bible. Since the scripture uh, typically dictates the topics we cover and this type of expositional preaching, not the other way around, what it does is it forces us to hear and it forces me to preach things that might not be our first choice to hear and preach. Our text today, I think, is that kind of passage. Believe it or not, it's about government and politics. Friends, you may have avoided talking about politics around your Thanksgiving dinner table, but I'm afraid we can't avoid the topic this morning. But in all seriousness, friends, I think we ought to kind of lean forward a bit in our seats this morning because what we're going to look at together very well may be the most influential political statement ever made in human history. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, it's on page 827 of the Bible underneath your seat. That Bible is there for you, friend. Avail yourself of it. Friends, this passage contains an event that happened on Tuesday of Jesus' Passion Week. So you remember on Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, acclaimed by the crowds as the Messiah, the king long awaited. On Monday, he exercised that kingly authority when he cleared the temple of the merchants and the money changers that had turned God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. And on Tuesday, the chief priests and the elders were furious and they openly challenged Jesus to try to muzzle his influence. And yet at the end of the day, as we've looked at over the past couple of weeks, they were the ones left speechless by Jesus' wisdom, his shrewdness, and then by three parables that exposed their rejection of him. And that brings us to verse 15 of chapter 22. Instead of repenting of their sin, these religious leaders scheme about how they might entice Jesus to incriminate himself by his own words. From verse 15 to the end of the chapter, what they're going to do is launch thorny question after thorny question at Jesus to try to embarrass him and ultimately to bring him down. The first theological grenade that they launch Jesus' way is about his view of government. So let's read together. Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the word of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, here's the main idea of the text that I pray will be the main idea of our sermon this morning. Honor and obey your governing leaders, but save your worship for God alone. 
Friends, that's just a paraphrase of Jesus' words in verse 21. It's the main idea, the central thrust of the text. Honor and obey your governing leaders, but save your worship for God alone. Friends, I'm normally predictable in my sermon structure. I usually outline the passage for you in two or three points. Uh, It's not what I'm going to do this morning, okay? And today I'm going to explain the gist of the text without an outline. (gasps) And then I'm going to give you three big applications about God and government after the explanation. Three explicitly Christian principles drawn from Jesus' statement that ought to govern how we interact with government as believers. Beloved, our God is not merely worthy of our money like Caesar is. He's worthy of everything we are and have. And I pray that God would do His work among us as we consider His claim on our lives. Look at verse 15 again. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Him in His words. They sent their disciples to Him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. Wink, wink, and teach the way of God truthfully. You do not care about anyone's opinion. If you're not swayed by appearances, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Matthew's, Matthew's narrative remark in verse 15 exposes the motives of the religious leaders in this moment. The Sanhedrin, the, the elite group of chief priests and elders, they had failed to pin Jesus down. And, and so now the Pharisees, a rabbinic sect that made up part of the Sanhedrin, sent some of their disciples to do what they could not. They wanted to entangle Jesus, to trap him in a web of his own making. And yet, Matthew includes an important detail that we could just easily gloss over if we're not careful. Notice the Pharisees' disciples did not go alone. They took with them the Herodians. So whereas the Pharisees were a religious group, the Herodians were a political group. The Pharisees, in their pursuit of religious purity under the law of Moses, were very much the the populist, pro-Israel, nationalist group. They were the sect of the people. The Herodians, on the other hand, were the outspoken supporters of the Herodian dynasty that Rome had put in place as puppet rulers in in Israel. The Herodians were, were the political opposite of the Pharisees. As supporters of Herod, they were collaborators with Rome. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The Herodians were the progressives. These groups did not like each other. They had opposite views, opposite values, but as it turned out, they had one shared enemy, Jesus of Nazareth. The Pharisees were threatened by Jesus' gospel teaching that repeatedly exposed their self-righteous hypocrisy and dead worship. As for the Herodians, friends, you can imagine, I'm sure they seethed with rage when they heard the people praise Jesus as King David's royal son. Any self-proclaimed Messiah was a threat to Herod's throne, so they thought. You've heard of the old adage, the enemy of, the, of my enemy is my friend. Well, these groups could not have been more opposite on the political spectrum, and yet here they form a diabolical alliance to bring Jesus down. Their opening words to Jesus just reek of flattery and duplicity. Teacher, we know that you are... True, you teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about public opinion, right? Friends, it's tragically ironic because in their duplicity, these guys were exactly right. Jesus is all of what they said, but they believed none of it. 
Clearly, they're trying here to butter Jesus up, to soften his defenses. They're goading him to say something that will give them the needed ammo they need to arrest him. This team of rivals hatch a politically explosive question that they're convinced will be the final straw in the downfall of Jesus of Nazareth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Friends, don't filter this question through the lens of modern-day taxes, okay? They're not asking Jesus if he likes the Israelite IRS. That's not what's going on, or the Roman IRS. They're asking him his opinion on the imperial tax required by the Romans each and every year, by the empire. Each year, the, the Roman Empire required the payment of one denarius, the equivalent of one day's wage as tribute from the people of Israel. You might think to yourself, well, that's not all that much money, like one day's wage. What's the big deal? Friend, the issue was not so much the amount, but what and whom the coin represented. Every year when Jews paid the tax, it was like they were being forced to acknowledge Caesar is Lord. He rules over us. It was an in-your-face reminder that the Israelites were subjugated as prisoners in their own land. So, so this group is trying to bait Jesus into a heads-or-tails response. But in this case, it's heads we win and tails you lose, Jesus, right? They were trying to get Jesus to pick between the Israel and the Romans. So if Jesus says, hey, I'm good with the tax, well, then he's a collaborator with Rome and a betrayer of Israel. On the other hand, he says, don't pay the tax. Well, he's a rebel whom the Herodians would immediately hand over to the Romans for sedition. Friends, this is a brilliant question. Honestly, you can imagine the Pharisee disciples and the Herodians kind of trading smug side-eye smirks as they wait for an answer. But friends, Jesus' answer is even more brilliant. It is stunning in its wisdom. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness an inscription is this. They said, Caesar's. Friends, this ancient silver, silver coin, the denarius, can be found in various museums around the world. I, I googled as I was studying picture of a Roman denarius during uh, this week, and, and, and up popped dozens of, of pictures. It's, it's fascinating to look at. Each denarius includes the likeness of whatever Roman emperor ruled as Caesar during that time period. And the denarius brought to Jesus in, the, in that moment would have had the image of Tiberius Caesar on it. On the one side was the face of Tiberius on the coin with the words, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side was a picture of an enthroned woman depicted as Pax, the Roman goddess of peace. On that side were the words, Maxim Pontiff, high priest. See, this coin didn't merely carry the weight of Roman currency. It carried the weight of Roman ideology. The coin broadcasted the Roman idea of who the real son of God is, who the real high priest is. Caesar to them. It was like a, a tiny, this coin was like a tiny silver idol that just happened to also be a piece of money. So the, the tension hangs thick in the air as they answer Jesus that, well, the likeness on the coin is Caesar's. 
And then each side of the debate waited with bated breath for the incriminating words that would follow out of Jesus' mouth. Instead, <laughs> instead, Jesus diffuses the bomb with one sentence. And that very sentence was actually a heat-seeking missile of political theology right back at them. Verse 21, then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So on the one hand, Jesus is saying, of course, pay the tax. Since Rome minted the coin, it's Caesar's money. Rome built your roads and infrastructure from the tax. You live under Roman laws. Rome protects you from enemy armies. So yes, give back to Caesar what is his. Sedition is not the way. Pay your taxes. And if Jesus would have stopped there, the nationalistic Pharisees would have erupted in rage. But he keeps going. And to God, the things that are God's. The coin bore Caesar's likeness and image as a symbol of Rome and existed by his authority. So friends, if we give to Caesar those things that bear his likeness, then that raises the question, what do we render to God that bears his image and likeness? Where has God stamped his image as a claim of authority? Is Genesis 1 pinging in your mind? It should be. God created humanity in His image and likeness. He stamped His face, as it were, upon the human soul. We as His creatures were created to reflect and represent His ultimate rule and authority as we give our ultimate allegiance and honor to Him. As one pastor said, in one breath, Jesus affirms Caesar's right to collect taxes and denies Caesar's right to collect worship. On the one hand, he legitimizes government and its leaders. Notice, notice that Jesus didn't say, he, he didn't say, render to Caesar what's his once he takes that blasphemous inscription off the coin. Render to Caesar's once what's his once Rome bows the, the knee to the kingdom of God. And he says, render to Caesar what's his despite the fact that Rome is wicked and pagan and godless. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is commanding honor and obedience to the very empire that would crucify him three days later. Soldiers that the imperial tax funded would nail Jesus' wrist to a crossbeam and his feet into the post. They would laugh and jeer at him as he hung there naked and exposed, gasping for air. It was these tax funded soldiers who after Jesus yielded his life would thrust a spear into his side. Yeah, shockingly, Jesus doesn't command rebellion or sedition, but honor and obedience to Caesar's empire. He legitimizes the authority of government leaders. It is astonishing. In the same breath that he legitimizes it, he also limits it. He limits the authority of government. Government is legitimate. It is not ultimate. Political leaders do not deserve our ultimate hope and allegiance. Friends, if everything in the world is God's, including us, 
and we're to give what is rightfully His back to Him, that means that not only is God worthy of our money, He's worthy of everything we are and everything that we have. Because I think it's easy to look at this verse and get the wrong impression. Like somehow Jesus is putting Caesar and God right next to each other. Like they're in side-by-side boxes, okay? Like here's the Caesar box. And, and, and inside the Caesar box are things like politics and, and laws and taxes and so on. And then, then right next to it is the God box. And inside the God box are things like worship and faith and churchy stuff, you know? Here's the government domain. Here's the God domain. And the two never intersect. That's how many people think. They assume that there's a, a wall of separation, not j- just between the state's ability to impose itself on the church, but a firewall between government and God altogether, like they have nothing to do with each other. But is that really what Jesus is saying? Is it? Is that what Jesus is saying? Surely not. Friends, giving God what is God's includes Caesar. Jesus wasn't pushing God out of the public domain into the private religious shadows. He was saying that Caesar, although worthy of obedience, can never be worthy of ultimate hope and allegiance and worship. God always trumps Caesar. Always. According to Jesus, there's not a a Caesar box and a God box next to it. There's this massive God box, His sovereignty over all. And inside it is every other possible box, including this little tiny Caesar box. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He rules over all, including over the nations and states and kings and congresses. Think of it, beloved. In two days, Jesus would stand before the Roman governor in Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate would ask Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Remember what Jesus said. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What Jesus is pressing here is that we are to honor and obey our governing leaders, but save our worship for God alone. We submit to the government out of devotion to the one who has authority over the government. Okay, that's the explanation of the passage. The rest of our time, I want to draw out three applications from the principles that we see in this passage. We don't have time to cover everything the Bible has to say about political theology, about government authority. We don't have time to give a final word on every modern-day political controversy, thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for that. Rather, what I want to do is tease out from this specific passage how we as Christians ought to think about our relationship to government. Okay, first application, number one. Submit to the government, honor its leaders, and be good citizens. Submit to the government, honor its leaders, be good citizens. Friends, the Pharisees were no doubt hoping that Jesus might confirm their Israelite nationalistic impulses and illegitimize the Roman state. But instead, Jesus does the opposite. What he insinuates, listen, is that even a pagan state 
is the legitimate state. We had time this morning. We could start at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis and trace throughout the entire Scripture the fact that God instituted human authority and, yes, human government as a gift to humanity. Friends, lest you think that we would be just better off without any government at all, just imagine a nation or a city with no laws. Imagine the anarchy and the chaos. Friends, we've gotten short glimpses of that type of thing in the last few months and years in some U.S. cities that have stopped prosecuting real crimes in the name of tolerance and liberality. It hasn't gone well for those cities, has it? Every fallen, broken government is one of God's gifts to hold the fabric of society together. When functioning rightly, government wields the power of the sword to punish evil and reward good. But of course, no government does that perfectly. Because like any human system, it's comprised of sinners who buck against God in his rule. The nations rage. Authority, even imperfect authority, reflects God. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign and the state is is his servant for good. And so Jesus commands us to submit to it. Beloved, you know how we know that Jesus is really saying to obey government and honor its leaders and be a good citizen? just in case his words aren't clear enough. You know how we know? Because when the apostles like Paul and Peter wrote about Christians' relationship with the government, it's this very idea of honor and submission and obedience that they emphasized. We read from Romans 13 earlier. Let's read part of it again. It's in your worship guide. You can look at it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Friends, let me just stop there for a second, okay? Anyone know who the top government authority was at the time Paul wrote to the local churches in Rome in 57 AD? Nero, the Roman emperor Nero. Nero hated Christians. He persecuted them fiercely. Nero reportedly had Christians burned alive as torches in his garden. He killed them for sport in the arena. In AD 64, Nero set Rome ablaze to preserve his power and then blamed Christians as a scapegoat. I think it's safe to say no United States president has ever paraded his wickedness as openly as Nero of Rome. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Skip down. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes is owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Beloved, modern day culture here in the United States of America is very much an anti-authority, an authority suspicious culture. Here in Arizona, our independent streak runs deep. We're suspicious of anyone who would tell us what to do. But we value our liberty here. Friends, I've seen more don't tread on me flags in Arizona in the last three years of living here than I've ever seen in my entire life of any, living anywhere else in the United States of America, okay? And believe me, I understand the instinct toward limited government that Arizonans prize the human liberty and freedom of conscience that we enjoy in our democratic republic is indeed a gift of God. But friends, if we happen to live under a monarchy, 
If we lived under a monarchy or any other form of government, it would equally be a gift from God for our good to the degree that it wields the sword for our good. And we would still be under biblical obligation to honor the leaders in that type of government. Beloved, rebelling against authority is not an instinct you gained from looking at Scripture and obeying it. It's an instinct of our sinful hearts. The impulse to deride and dishonor political and government leaders we disagree with is not of the spirit, it's of the world. I was convicted this week as I studied for this sermon, beloved. I think like many Christians, I have become desensitized to how dishonoring I can be for political authority I don't agree with. Thank the Lord, not in public, not yet, okay? But at least in private. Social media has amplified this sin. It gets given everyone a public forum to spout opinions and share gifts and memes and the like. Friends, be careful. Don't use a platform like social media to dishonor the authority that God has put in place. The degree to which you honor authority is the degree to which you honor God. It's this way in your home, at your school, in your workplace, and yes, under government. Hear me, I am not suggesting that you can't disagree with government policy or want a certain leader removed from office. But beloved, let me just ask you, do you honor President Biden and Governor Hobbs with your thoughts and words and actions? A Christian's attitude shouldn't be to own the libs or to take down the neocons, or insert whatever political target that fits your political persuasion. Our words, our actions, our thoughts ought to be honoring to the Lord. Listen to how Peter echoed Jesus' sentiment in 1 Peter 2.13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to raise to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter clearly saw this issue of submitting to authority, not just in terms of authority, but in terms of Christian witness, didn't he? He says, by doing that, you'll put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Unbelievers, they're already looking for a reason to illegitimize Christianity. Many of them think that we follow, followers of Christ are just terrible for society because of our moral positions. Peter says, don't give them an easy target by your disdain for governing authorities. Be subject to every human institution from the highest level of government to the lowest. John, what does this look like in real life? It looks like doing things like paying your taxes. Friends, if you're not paying taxes because you're unhappy with how they're being used, I don't think you'll find New Testament backing for that approach. Pay Caesar what Caesar is due. None of us enjoy that, <laughs> if we're honest. I want to pay less of them, not more of them. But we submit out of honor to Christ. Faithfulness in this area looks like not intentionally breaking laws just because you think they're silly or not necessary. Even when the government support immorality and sin, which 
By the way, every single government has done in one way or another since the fall. Even when that happens, Christ expects his followers normally to obey government. Yes, seek to improve it, even correct it, advocate for justice, vote your conscience, call your congressman, right? Be active in the public square. It's a wonderful thing when genuine Christ followers run and are elected for political office. All of that is right and good. Yet even when a government props up evil, Christians ought to be slow to think that we can just disregard that government and its authority over us. Apparently, Jesus is not a theonomist, right? He's not saying you should take the Old Testament law and legislate it in governments of the nations on earth. He's saying just the opposite of that when he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. As believers in this fallen age, we ought to continue to pray, continue to be salt and light in the public square, and set our hope fully on the day when King Jesus comes again and his kingdom fully arrives. Perhaps most of all, honoring governing authorities for Christians mean that in these very, that these very authorities, these very governing leaders that we submit to, they ought to fill the content of our prayers. Friends, this is why we pray each and every Lord's Day, each and every Lord's Day gathering. We pray for our leaders, just as Paul instructed Timothy for he and the church at Ephesus to do. We seek the good of our city by praying for the good of our leaders, of our nation's leaders, of our city's leaders, of our state's leaders. We're not endorsing the individual or their party. We're simply honoring their office and obeying the Bible by praying for them. Beloved, submit to the government, honor its leaders, and be good citizens. Number two, number two. If submission to government conflicts with submission to God, choose to obey, obey God over government. There could be no more core Christian principle in relation to government. If submission to government conflicts with submission to God, choose to obey God over government. You say, John, where's that in the text? Remember the theology of Jesus' statement. Caesar has a right to everything stamped with his image. But God has a right to everything stamped with his image, including our very lives. That means that if Caesar's commands and God's commands ever conflict, God's command wins, right? We choose to submit to governing authorities out of love for God, but we don't give government our ultimate allegiance. Only God through Christ by His Spirit deserves that. Again, the apostles are just so helpful to model what Jesus has put in place. So in Acts 5, in Acts 5, the Jerusalem authorities commanded the apostles to stop preaching the gospel and proclaiming that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and Messiah. How did Peter and the apostles respond? We ought to obey God rather than men. We'd rather die disobeying you than live disobeying Christ. How might that principle look in our day? Well, in God's amazing kindness, we enjoy freedom of religion here in the United States of America. But if government were to, for instance, require you to affirm or celebrate something evil like abortion or LGBTQ lifestyle as an example, 
then brothers and sisters, you must disobey out of the greater loyalty to Christ. If the government ever threatens to take away our church's tax-exempt status, if we preach the Bible's sexual ethic, well, friends, it would be far better to pay the government taxes than to compromise and dim our witness to Jesus. Beloved, the Bible has a category for civil disobedience, but only in matters that prohibit your clear ability to honor God above all. You ought not to disobey the government flippantly. It's the type of thing that you should get the elders of our church to weigh in on before heading in that direction, just out of wisdom. It's the type of thing that there should be no doubt in your mind that civil disobedience is the only path to Christian obedience. You should have confidence that the matter, in that matter that you're disobeying on, you should have confidence that the Lord will vindicate you on the last day when you stand before him. So clear is the matter biblically. In April of 1938, the government of Germany issued an order to all pastors. Anyone who is called to a spiritual office is to affirm his loyal duty with the following oath. I swear that I will be faithful and obedient to Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, of the German Reich and people, so help me God. Perhaps even more tragic than this oath was Hitler's own experience with Christian pastors in Germany, which informed his perception. You can do anything you want with them, Hitler said. They will submit. They are insignificant little people, submissive as dogs, and they sweat with embarrassment when you talk to them. when earthly kings and kingdoms rage against the Lord and His Christ, may we always remember that Christ Jesus reigns above all, not Caesar. And may that knowledge put steel in our spine so that we stand firm when that day arrives. If submission to government conflicts with submission to God, choose to obey God over government. Number three, Don't give to government or its leaders what only God deserves. Don't give to government or its leaders what only God deserves. Friends, Jesus' words to give back to God what is God's, which is everything, means that our greatest worship and our greatest hopes should never be put in the state or any particular leader or politician. You say, John, well, this point clearly is not for me. I would never worship the government, man. I'm an Arizonan, okay? Let's tease it out a bit. Friend, does your hope for a brighter tomorrow rest upon your preferred candidate or party getting back into office? Or is your greatest, most fundamental, deepest hope in the Lord Jesus and His coming kingdom? Do you find yourself demonizing your friends and neighbors who have a different political bent than you? Because if your heart and your hope is wrapped fully around the axle of political outcomes like election 2024, then guess what? The throne of your life is occupied. But it's not Jesus who's sitting there. 
when your best hope is in this candidate winning or that law being passed, you'll find it increasingly challenging to relate to others through the the Christian lens of neighborly love and gospel ministry. That person isn't a person to love. They're a problem to loathe, right? They're a target to be defeated, even if you have to sin to do it. How about this one? Do you become angry or anxious when an election result turns out the opposite of what you hoped? And it's got to be a temptation for all of us, right? Friends, what might that say about your view of God and His sovereignty? How might that change how you represent King Jesus as a citizen of heaven on earth? Friends, please understand, I am not saying that politics are insignificant or that you shouldn't be engaged in the political process. Again, we live in a democratic republic. Part of our Christian responsibility is to work to affect change in society as we're able. Vote your conscience in accordance with Scripture. We ought to work and pray to preserve the liberty that we have long enjoyed in this country as a distinct blessing of God. But I'm here to tell you, the American dream, even at its, at its very zenith, at its pinnacle, is broken. It cannot ultimately satisfy your soul nor secure your eternal destiny. Every single human government wants to be recognized as your Savior, as the Messiah. I'm the one who can fix all your problems. We're the political party where the good life is found. And friends, as our country just grows more and more secular, you should expect those type of claims to grow more and more in your face. As Christians, we must remember that this world is not our home. Our primary citizenship is not within the United States or Great Britain or Hong Kong or China or Guatemala or Mexico or Vietnam or Thailand or Argentina or Brazil. No matter what your passport says, Your primary citizenship is within the kingdom of God, not in any kingdom of man. Our great and ultimate hope is not in the utopian promise any candidate might make to restore American greatness or elicit change you can believe in, but in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because the king of righteousness reigns there. Well, that our greatest longing should not be for a new president or a right-leaning Supreme Court or fill in the blank with your dream political scenario. Our greatest longing should be for a new world governed by the only leader who can fulfill every one of your deepest hopes. And guess what? Guess what? God has given us a visible expression of that coming new world. Did you know that? He's erected embassies of his coming kingdom on earth that represent King Jesus' reign until he comes. What is that embassy? It's the local church. Our ultimate political identity is not affiliation with the Republican or Democrat party. It's not remaining independent like any good Arizona maverick would do. Our ultimate political identity isn't bound through membership in a party, but by membership in the local church. I certainly don't mean by that statement that a church kind of functions like a lobbyist organization or, a, you know, kind of representing a party platform or a voting block. I mean that a church is political in the way an embassy is political. 
you were to walk into the U.S. Embassy in Beijing or Buenos Aires or Mexico City, it's as if you're standing on the soil of the United States in China, Argentina, or Mexico. An embassy represents one nation inside another. Beloved, this is precisely how the local church operates. Every member is a citizen, an ambassador of Christ's kingdom and God's holy nation. As a congregation, we speak for the king himself. Jonathan Lehman writes in his book, How the Nations Rage, every week that a preacher gets up to preach, he makes a political speech. He teaches the congregation to observe all that the king with all authority in heaven and on earth has commanded. He strives to shape their lives in the way of the king's law. We then declare the king's judgments and the ordinances in church membership. We embrace the king's purpose in our prayers. We echo the king's joy and mourning in our songs. Friends, do you want to you find a society in which the marginalized are cared for and life is cherished and racism is eradicated? And justice is prioritized all as God intended under Christ's rule. You are not going to find those things, those ideals within a certain party or by moving to Texas or Florida. That's not, that's not where you're going to find it. You'll find that society when you join a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you link arms with all those who have the same passport as you. Not the American one. <laughs> the baptism and church membership one, where people from all types of national and ethnic backgrounds unite as one under King Jesus. Friends, the local church is where you can expect to find the reign of Jesus carried out, albeit imperfectly, until he comes. So that together, those outside the kingdom might look at this, this embassy of the king and think to themselves, my goodness, I want to be part of something like that something that loving, something that beautiful. Their king must be great. Beloved, you understand as a believer and follower of Christ, you have more in common with Russian Christians or Iranian Christians or Chinese Christians than you do with your old glory-waving, unbelieving neighbor who votes with you down the line on every issue. So uniquely powerful is the work of the gospel that it brings people from all the nations under the rule of the one king. Patriotism is a good thing, but our ultimate pledge of allegiance must be to the king who is gathering a multinational people for the fame of his name. Nations come and go, but only to his church as Jesus promised ultimate success, even against the gates of hell. As Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., has said, before and after America, there was and will be the church. The nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty. Beloved, we are American citizens best when we are not American citizens first. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? All the chaos and change in American culture right now does not worry God, and it ought not to make us anxious either. 
The United States could retreat from its position as a global superpower. Our economy could deteriorate. The political systems that have produced all the social and economic blessing of the last two centuries could fail tomorrow, and none of it threatens the purposes of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We as God's people don't need capitalism or democracy or the U.S. Constitution to thrive. We need the King and His church. And no one can take that away. Friends, if you're here and not a Christian, I pray that you'll not put your hope in the utopian vision of government or a political party. The city of man is passing away. There's nothing ultimate, there's nothing of ultimate value or soul satisfaction here. Only the city of God is eternal. If you can find a human government that solves all the problems that we have and can end the darkness of evil and provide forgiveness for all the wrongs that we've ever done, well, please let us know, right? I say that tongue in cheek because we know that no earthly political system can solve the problem of the human heart and its rebellion against God. In fact, the kings of men are known for taking, not giving, for dominating, not serving. But praise God, the the kingdom of God is defined by a totally different type of king. As one pastor wrote, Jesus doesn't wield his scepter demanding your life for mine. He rules by saying my life for yours. You might be tempted to hear Jesus' command, render to God the things that are God's and be terrified because you envision him as some sort of benevolent dictator in the sky or worse as the, the cruel tyrant of the universe. Jesus' command should not terrify you unless you set yourself in opposition against God's holy rule. But I beg of you to see this morning that the reason that we can give our whole self to God is that He gave Himself to us in the person of His Son. At the end of verse 22, Matthew concludes the story. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left Him and went away. Jesus had confounded his enemies once again. This time, they didn't merely leave him in disgust. They were amazed at his wisdom. And perhaps deep down, they knew he was right. And yet in 72 hours, they'll be screaming for him to be crucified. And the thing that should stun us this morning and cause us to weep with joy is that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the King of heaven and earth, let them do it. He willingly gave His sovereign life on the cross to suffer and to die for our treasonous rebellion against God. On the third day, He rose to take up His eternal throne, proving publicly that anyone who bows their knee and trusts in Him fully will be saved and forgiven and brought into his kingdom of light and life. Honor and obey your governing leaders, but save your worship for God alone. Save your greatest allegiance, the king of the nations. Let's pray.
Father, cause your penetrating, piercing word, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, to echo and resonate in our hearts today, we pray. May we be obedient to you above all. And may that submission, that glad joy in you be reflected in our obedience even to our governing authorities. Use us as salt and light, we pray, in our communities, in the public square, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.